Good morning. Welcome back. When I uh, decided to preach this series of sermons on promises for the bleak midwinter, I assumed that I would be preaching in the middle of blizzards. Who knew? Promises for the blah midwinter, perhaps, is a better way to say it. But another promise this morning for the bleak midwinter of our inner lives comes from Philippians chapter 4. I invite you to turn to that, and um, a word of introduction might help. Uh, Paul is in prison as he writes this, and uh, back then their uh, prison keepers were not obligated to take care of their prisoners. That was left to their family and friends. The families and friends brought food and clothing and uh, blankets, whatever the prisoners needed, and, and that's the reference here at the beginning of our reading in Philippians 4 verse 10. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I am looking for a gift, but I am looking for what may be credited to your account. I have received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And now here is the promise for the bleak midwinter. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. May God bless us as we reflect on this promise for the bleak midwinter. Well, I wonder how many of you know where the title of this sermon came from. Thank you for not telling them yet. Anybody know? No, you don't have to say it, but just... Well, it is a song, but the song is based on the first line of William Shakespeare's playing, uh, play, Richard III, who is also known as the son or the Duke of York. Now is the winter of our discontent. Anybody know what comes next in the play? Now is the winter of our discontent made glorious summer by this son of York. Big deal, huh? But that's what I want to talk about. How another son, not of York, but of God, can actually change the winter of our discontent into the glorious summer of contentment. 
Now, I should tell you right up front that comparing Jesus to Richard III is a real insult to Jesus. Because Richard III was one of the great scoundrels of English history. Shakespeare's play is about the latter part of the 15th century, about the time when Columbus sailed the blue, you know, 1492. Intrigue, murder, treachery, rebellion, rule the land, and it was a lot of it Richard's doing. He wanted to be king of England, and he would do anything to get it. Now, his treachery didn't work. He did not transform the winter of England's discontent into the glorious summer of contentment. Rather, he died in disgrace. Well, so did Jesus. Except he died for our sins, not his own. And when he died, he rose in glorious triumph so that our winter of discontent could be transformed into the summer of glorious contentment. Now, I suspect that some of you are sitting there in the middle of the winter saying, I can't imagine that. I absolutely can't imagine how even Jesus could make me content with winter in Michigan. Well, obviously, I'm not talking about the weather this morning. I'm talking about the bleak midwinter of your soul. Maybe you're not there right now, but you have been those times in life where it's cold inside, where you are emotionally and spiritually frozen, when the restless winds of discontent rattle your desires like dried leaves on an old oak tree in January. The hymn writer captures our longing for the lost summer of inner peace some of you know the old song, What peaceful hours I once enjoyed, how sweet their memories still, but they have left an aching void the world can never fill. Philippians 4, the Apostle Paul can say, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances in my life, but you and I know that that is one of the hardest things in life. How can we be content in every circumstance? Paul calls it a secret. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every circumstance. How do you think he learned that? I think it was in the winter times of life. In 2 Corinthians 11, you have Paul telling us about the winters he went through. He's arguing there, if you look it up later, with what he calls super apostles, people who challenge his authorities, people who say, you know, Paul, we've got better credentials than you do. And so here in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul gives us his street creds, his credentials earned through hard times. I'm going to read some of it to you. He says, I have been in prison more frequently than any of them. I have been flogged more severely than exposed to death again and again. Five times I have received from the Jews the 40 lashes less one. That's the 39 lashes with that cat of nine tails that leaves your back flayed open like a piece of hamburger. Five times, he says. Three times I was beaten with rods. 
Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day on the open sea, treading water, hanging to a piece of driftwood. I've been in danger from river, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Paul had been through a long, hard winter, but through it all he learned the secret of being content no matter what was going on in his life. It was interesting that the word secret in the Greek language there of Philippians 4 is the word mysterion, from which you can hear our word mystery comes. People all over the world are trying to solve the mystery of contentment. How can I find it? There must be a million ways people try to find that contentment. But I think you can boil them all down to three. There is the Western way to contentment, the Eastern way to contentment, and the Christian way to contentment. Now our text talks about plenty. That corresponds to the Western way. And it talks about want. That relates to the Eastern way. And then it talks about him who gives me strength, and that is the Christian way. All of us, I don't need to say much about the first one, the Western way, all of us know it, all of us live it. It is to give in to our desires. In a consumerist society like ours, we're bombarded daily with a blizzard of messages from Wall Street and Hollywood ads and programs giving this one message, you will be content when you have what you want. Whether it's a car or a house or a girl or a vacation or whatever it is at your heart's desire, when you have the plenty that you want, you'll be content. Whether you get it through hard work and wise investing or manipulative, manipulative schemes and outright crime, whether what you want is a person or a thing or a situation, the way to be content is to have whatever your heart desires. That's the self-centered consumerist way to contentment in the West. And you know that, but it is it is a sad fact that many Western Christians, you and me, live as though we believe that way is true, even though we know it's not. We know it's not because we see all around us many people who are rich and famous who have their heart's desires. Last year, 2016, we saw dozens of them die, famous people. People from rock star prince to Star Wars star Princess Leia. How many of them do you think died content? My favorite figure like that comes from my earlier life, uh, my hero Johnny Carson. Back when I had hair, people said, you know, you look a little bit like him. 
Nobody says it anymore. He was the guy who put us to bed at night. He made us smile as we fell off to sleep. He was funny, and that made him rich and famous. He was, they said at his funeral, a national institution. But his closest friends said he died unhappy. He had everything fame and fortune could bring him, and he was discontent when he died in the winter of his life. The Western way to contentment is a dead end, which is why so many people in the West are turning to the East. If the Western way to contentment is to say yes to ourself and all of our desires, the Eastern way is to say no to ourself and its desires. You say, what are you talking about the Eastern way? Well, I'm talking about the way of, of meditation that comes to us through Buddhism and Hinduism. I'm not talking about meditating a little bit. No, no, I'm talking about the whole philosophy of life, the whole practice of life, which says the way to be content is to empty yourself of all your desires. A while back, I, I read the most famous book about the Eastern way. It was popular back in the 1960s when I was young, back when the culture turned counter, you know, and people started to turn to the East, even if they didn't know this, what was happening. The book is called Siddhartha, written by Hermann Hesse. Anybody here read it? Hey, I'm astonished and pleased. It's a story of a high-born young man in India, a member of the Brahmin class. Sharp mind, athletic body, good-looking. His fine family adored him. His neighbors worshipped him. He had every pleasure and luxury his society could provide, and he was deeply religious. But he was not content. And so he set out on the path to find a deep inner peace. Here's how Hesse describes that search. I think you have it up there. Siddhartha <clears throat> excuse me, had one goal, to become empty of thirst, desire, dreams, pleasure, and sorrow, to let the self die. No longer to be self, to experience the peace of an emptied heart. That was his goal. He tried to get to that goal by a path of self-denial that led him to self-inflicted suffering and trying to cope with it, to meditation that was designed to empty his mind of all images. Hesse writes, Siddhartha lost himself a thousand times and dwelt in non-being for days at a time, but always his path led him back to himself and his wants. If you listen to that, you know that the Eastern way of contentment is hard. But Hesse said Siddhartha got there. Here's how he describes it. Siddhartha is sitting beside a quietly flowing river. And from that hour, writes Hesse, Siddhartha 
ceased to fight his destiny. There shone in his face a serenity of knowledge of one who is no longer confronted with the conflict of his desires, who has found salvation, who is in harmony with the stream, and listen to this, with the stream of events, with the stream of life, who is filled with sympathy and compassion because he is now in harmony with the unity of all things. Sounds fascinating, doesn't it? Even a little attractive. In fact, it does attract millions of people, not only in eastern lands, but right here. They live all around you, and maybe you've been tempted yourself. But what's the cost? The cost of the eastern way. Well, first of all, it demands a denial of all your God-given desires. It requires that you say no to yourself as a separate entity in the world, the self that God has given you. But most of all, the Eastern way pays no attention to peace with God. There is no holy loving, personal God in the Eastern way. There's only the stream, the river of all, into which each individual life drops like a meaningless drip of water. The Eastern way to contentment offers the pearl of peace, at the great price of ignoring God. Which is exactly why so many secular Western people find it an attractive alternative to the Christian way of contentment. You don't have to deal with God, it's just about you. The Christian way to contentment is, of course, centered precisely on a personal God. A loving God who became human with all of our human wants and needs and desires. The Christian way to contentment is not the Western way that says yes to self and desire or the Eastern way that says no to self and desire. It is the straight and narrow path between the two. It is not about self and desire. It is about the Savior and his desire to save us from sin so that we can be the self God always meant us to be. That's the secret that Paul had learned through the winter and summer of his life. It's not about me. It's not about my desires. It's about the Christ. No matter what, he is with me. In fact, he is in me. And because of that, says Paul, because of that, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. At least that's the translation you all know. That's the translation I read from the New International Version. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. 
except that's not really what it says in the original language. In the original language, it says, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Here's the difference. I have a friend who, who loves to play golf as much as I do. His putter has this text written on the bottom of it. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. I can drop every single putt because Christ gives me strength, except he doesn't. I've seen it. He misses as much as I do. The text does not mean that we can do anything we set our minds to as long as Christ gives us strength. I can be a star athlete. I can become rich and famous. I can have a wonderful family. Anything I set my mind to, I can accomplish through Christ who gives me strength. That's not what the text means. The context is about what? Contentment. No matter what the circumstance. That's what Paul means. I can be content. I can do plenty. And I can do poverty. I can do health. And I can do sickness. I can do success. And I can do failure. I can do cancer, I can do loss, I can do death. That's what it means. I can do, well, I can be content no matter what the circumstances of my life because Christ is in me and he can give me the strength to do that. Now, Paul is telling us in the text that he wasn't always content. He says, I had to learn it. I have learned to be content, which tells you and me something very important, and I'm glad it says it. It says that you can be a devout Christian. You can have Christ living in you beyond the shadow of a doubt and yet not be content. Well, you know that. that that's you. That's me. Because although Christ is in us, we're not that close to him. The secret of contentment is an ever-growing personal relationship with Christ. The closer you are to him, the more content you'll be. When Christ is actually at the center of life, when he is our heart's desire, then we'll be content no matter what the circumstances because he matters more than the circumstances. That's what Paul was getting at a chapter before this in Philippians. Philippians 3, verses 7 and 8, when he says, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I want to know Christ, he writes. Now, I'm well aware that that sounds quite a bit like Siddhartha, like the way to contentment is self-denial, the loss of all that I am and all that I have, the death of self, but there's a crucial difference between 
that Eastern way and the Christian way. It is the central difference between Christianity and every other religion in the world. The one to whom we surrender ourselves is the personal God who sacrificed his son so that we could experience life to the full in the deepest sense. By his sacrifice, Jesus shows us that God will stop at nothing to meet our needs. God will do anything and everything to make our lives full. That's why Paul concludes all this talk about contentment with this lovely promise for the bleak midwinter. My God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. If you really believe that, the Son of God will transform the winter of your discontent into the glorious summer of contentment. Let us pray. Jesus, we praise you for sacrificing yourself for us. We say that often, and yet we never really know how much it means for us. So thank you for the small reminder again today that through you and because of you, our Father in heaven intends to and will meet all of our needs. We find that hard to believe when we're caught in difficult times, when things don't go our way, when we're discontent. And so we pray now that you will use these words of Paul, Holy Spirit, to strengthen our faith, to help us walk more closely with Christ, that we might know what it is to be gloriously content, no matter what the circumstances. And God, most of all, we thank you this morning that you are content with us, even when we fail and fail miserably to believe enough to be content, that you love us anyway, for Jesus' sake, amen. Please stand.